Good evening, everybody. Hope you're doing well. It is 5th of November, 2014. I hope you are having a wonderful, wonderful Wednesday night. And I hope if you're listening to this, say, on Thursday, that it makes your Thursday absolutely spectacular. Mike, who do we have first? All right. Up first today is Keith. Keith wrote in and said, The capitalist property owners have historically structured a state to protect their land and oppress their workers. How would an anarcho-capitalist society avoid the arising of this state? Would you like to elaborate? I I think I get the general idea. Did you want to go any deeper into it? Uh, Yeah. So basically, I was at a uh, Students for Liberty conference. I'm I'm like a full-blown anarcho-capitalist myself. And we had some anarcho-communists come and like bash the party, and th- they were talking about how um, how capitalism uh, is what well, what the U.S. currently has is complete capitalism because you first have entrepreneurs and then the state arises because they need the state to protect their large amounts of property, which they otherwise would not be able to protect themselves. So, like, big Walmart corporations could not protect themselves unless there was a government. Therefore, capitalism precedes the state, not the state happens and then you have capitalism and then cronyism. So their argument is that anarcho-capitalism was the norm at some point in the past and then a state grew out of concentrated economic interests to protect their property, right? Well, yeah, yeah, basically – um, and do they have any evidence for this unfettered, untrammeled free trade? Because one of the things that's a challenge with making the case that there was somehow a free market in the past was, until the last couple of hundred years, the worldwide acceptance and prevalence of slavery would be one thing that would be kind of a challenge to the argument that we had some wonderful free market in the past that then got co-opted by corporate interests. Do they, did they provide any evidence, or was this just a bunch of words chasing uh, a bunch of prejudices? Oh, well, no. It, 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 of course, is a bunch of prejudice. But, I mean, that, that's, that is the like, bottom-line Peter Joseph argument for, uh, like to, to oppose capitalism. It's that you have capitalists who own property, and like the government, if you don't pay taxes, you die or go to jail. Or if you don't work for a boss, you die or, or basically just suffer unless you work for them as a slave. Right. So this is – I mean I know you're just sort of repeating their arguments, but this is a lot of highly emotional trigger words for people masquerading as some sort of historical analysis, right? Oh, yeah. So, so, yeah, if you want to be a good anarcho-communist, then the first thing you have to do is you have to co-mingle economic power and political power. You have to sort of pretend that they're both, both the same thing. You know, like if you, if you can conflate raping with dating, then you've muddied the waters to the point where I guess your ideas seem relatively clear. And yeah. so the first thing you have to do is say, well, corporations are like the government or corporations and the government blend into each other or you know, that they're in an unholy alliance and will be forever because corporations give money to the government and the government in turn gives uh, protection to corporations and so on. And so concentrated economic power must invariably lead to monopolistic political power in this argument, if I understand the argument correctly. Yeah. Right. 
Right. So, I mean, the first question I would ask is, is there any difference between economic power and political power? And they do their damnedest to say that there isn't, right? So the government can put you in jail uh, if you don't obey it, and corporations can put you in jail if – or can put you in economic jail, can sort of effectively have you homeless and starving and begging for jail if you don't obey their edicts, right? Yeah. Right. Right. Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of challenges, I guess is the nice way of putting it, to to this formulation. So I guess the first question I would have is, is there any permeability between worker and owner? And again, owners are workers in general and usually work harder than owners. But, you know, can you rise up? Is there social or class mobility, I guess, would be, would be the question. Do, can the poor become rich? Can the rich become poor? In a free market, is there uppies and downies, right? And statistically, there is, right? I mean, they used to call this shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, right? Like if you work your physical job like Nicolas Cage in Moonstruck, you, you don't wear any shirt sleeves. You're in a wife beater, right? And then you tough it up for a while, but then everybody goes nuts and blows all their money and so on, right? And so there is social mobility in the free market, but of course those at the top don't like to slide, right? They don't they don't like to go down. They don't want to a lot of competition from the people who will work cheaper from them and they don't want the possibility of being out competed or out innovated and so on. Because it takes a lot of effort to initially accumulate a fortune and uh that effort tends not to be transmitted um, dynastically very well without the state. So I don't know if you've heard of something called um, a regression to the mean. And what that means is that if you have an IQ of like 140 or 150 and your wife has an IQ of 140 and 150, you are not at all likely to give birth to a child with an IQ of 140 or 150. You're more likely to give a child, I mean, more intelligent, we would imagine, but in the same way, if you have an IQ of 80 and your wife has an IQ of 80, you're not likely to give birth to a kid with an IQ of 80. There's always this tendency to drift back towards the mean, the sort of the 100. And so the energy and enthusiasm and initiative and intelligence that is brought to bear on the aggregation of the first fortune is rarely matched by offspring and because there's just a regression to the mean. And so in the absence of a state, it's very hard to create a dynasty because all it takes is a you know a couple of not-so-smart kids and the fortune will pretty much dissipate and so on. So everybody who wants to found any kind of dynasty uh, knows that the best way to do it is to buy the favors of the state. And once you bought the favors of the state and and you've got the protections of the state and you raise the barriers to entry uh, and so on, then you have a wonderful situation wherein you can maintain your dynasty regardless of how many idiot offspring you are more likely, compared to the initiator, more likely to have. So there is, of course, a tendency to uh, want to use a political power and that's that's sort of inevitable. But I guess the closest analogy would be, well, um, when the state enforced the slave trade and, and socialized the cost of going to catch the slaves, then people used slaves. And then when the state stopped doing that, lo and behold, uh, slaves uh, were no longer slaves, at least not in the way that they were before. Of course, there was a Jim Crow and so on, but 
but there were uh, there was no slavery when the government stopped enforcing it, and that to me is analogous to what's called corporatism or capitalism now, the sort of crony capitalism that goes on. So when the government stops enforcing the privileges and benefits that corporations enjoy, then they will be released to the free market and they can survive or not survive as they see fit. Now, of course, the business owners, the employees, the investors, the shareholders, they all represent concentrated economic power. But in the absence of a state, that then falls on the mercy of the voluntary choices of the marketplace. With the state, they can enforce this, that, and the other. I mean, Walmart gets, as far as I understand it, tons tons of subsidies and I'm sure uh, lobbies for particular protections, as do all uh, companies. Uh, and of course, that's to some degree driven by overseas uh, that uh, uh, overseas companies get huge amounts of subsidies sometimes from their respective governments and then engage in what is sometimes called dumping which is, uh, of course, is shipping subsidized goods in a way that local businesses can't compete with and so on. So I, I think that they have a challenge in that if you go back further and further in history, I mean, starting from sort of the 19th century going backwards, you tend to get less and less of a free market. So this idea that there was freedom and then spontaneously there arose a government I think is is not valid, and and I would like to see evidence of this magical hierarchy-less society. I mean, it doesn't even have to be stateless, right? I mean, um, I don't think that, uh, say, the aboriginals in the outback of Australia were doing all kinds of anarcho-capitalism before, before, I don't know, the, the, the market came along with the with the colonial, with the colonists. So I think that it's tough to make the case that in the past there was this big free market. It certainly is true that corporations will use, and, and most people will use the market to, sorry, the government to further their own economic interests. And you can reliably predict voting blocks in this way. And of course, uh, members of a board in a corporation have a legal and fiduciary responsibility to maximize shareholder value. And if that means that lobbying does that, then that's what they have to do according to the rules of the game. I mean, if you have a rule in chess which says the queen can travel in any direction as far as she wants to go, expecting people to say, well, I'm going to limit her to two squares is not particularly realistic and will end up with you getting a lot of games lost. If those are the rules of the game, then people will act within that game to maximize their own advantages. If you change the rules of the game, then saying, well, those rules will just spontaneously reemerge is a tough uh, a tough case to make i mean and and also the idea that you are enslaved to somebody with whom you can voluntarily exchange value in other words if you're young and you want to work as a waiter then you can go into a restaurant and you can be a waiter the idea that that makes you a slave i think is uh, is quite challenging and i think that would only really occur that idea would only really occur to very low-skilled people or people with very poor emotional or social skills. In other words, people whose economic value is quite low. In other words, their economic options or opportunities are very small. I mean, I don't think that Brad Pitt feels like a slave because he has to go to work on a movie set because he's paid 10 or $20 million a movie and he can basically pick whatever projects he wants to uh, to work on. He doesn't feel like a slave because his economic value is very high. If Bill Gates were to indicate that he was interested in returning from 
setting out mosquito netting to Africa and said, I would really like to get involved in running a high-tech company. I mean, can you imagine how many people would be like dying to get him on their board? I don't think that he would feel like a slave because he has very high economic worth or value. So I think it's hard to make the case that someone's a slave in the economic system unless they have very low economic value, uh, in which case your options are quite limited. I mean, if you, I mean, if I were to go to Italy and try and get a job, maybe I could be a busboy. I don't speak Italian, right? Maybe I could be a busboy or maybe I could be a, a street sweeper or a, a dishwasher. Well, my options would be very limited because not knowing the local language, I would have a tough time getting any kind of work, right? So the question then becomes, how is it that adults get into the marketplace after 12 years of government education with virtually no skills? Well, I mean, because it's the government. And they, for a wide variety of reasons, we don't have to grind our way through here. They're just not motivated or interested in adding to the economic value of the young people in their care. And uh, so, again, here we have a big problem of the state, right? So the state's raising people, the state's enforcing corporations. And of course, there's huge amounts of vested economic interests that have aligned themselves to state power and have hardened around that alignment that now wish to use state power to maintain their value, all of which is perfectly understandable. But the idea that people who have accepted a new and foundational moral truth will just suddenly swing right back into some ancient moral untruth, I think is not hugely valid. I mean, there's not a lot of people with the t-shirt that says Miletus was right, right? the guy who brought charges against uh, Socrates for corrupting the youth and not believing in the gods of the city. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we kind of get that now. There's, there's not a lot of people who are like, yay, Holocaust, you know, I mean, uh, so once people have accepted and, and and nobody is advocating for a return to out and out slavery right i mean <laughs> tax slavery debt slavery but not let's bring back the ownership of human beings by other human beings and nobody's saying let's take away the right of contract from women and and so on right or let's let's put children back in up the chimneys and down the mines and so on right i mean w once people have moved beyond a moral paradigm it, it, it takes a massive catastrophe for them to slide back, so to speak. But there's, once people have accepted a new moral paradigm, it really doesn't work to try and go against it. And so once people have accepted the true universality of property rights and the non-aggression principle, then for some company to have a meeting where they say, I don't know, something like this, man, I'm so tired of competing with people. Ah, Customers are fickle. I mean, someone's coming out with new stuff all the time. I'm tired. Don't you get bored? I mean, don't you, just, don't you want to just keep releasing the same crap every year and calling it new and improved? <laughs> oh, wait. That's this show. Um, so I've got a better idea. I've got a better idea. Let's fund a giant army. You know, let's take a, a, a $5 billion or, or, or $50 billion and let's go fund a giant army. And we are going to use that army to gain control of the entire geographical region. And then we will be able to impose our wills on 
on everyone. I mean, not to do a monologue. I mean, can can you think of what other people in that boardroom meeting might say? No. Yeah, uh, I'm. I mean, the the whole argument around uh, like using the state to hold your dynasty. I mean, is you you can always look at the lottery winners who have won like millions of dollars and then lose it right away because it's not like they earned it and they're the you know the people who the market has sent money to. It's more of like a luck of the draw thing. So when big corporations get money through the state, it's not like they're going to hold on to it for long amounts of time once the market's freed up because consumers right. are going to allocate their dollars elsewhere. Just like how when the Fed expands you know, uh, credit through lowering the interest rate and then people don't buy as many houses or don't buy as many stocks and the market is just reallocated to where consumers demand money. It's not like these big statist, you know, corporations can last that much longer if we have a free market. No, and they, that's why they they invest in in lobbying. Now, yeah. again, to to yeah. be fair, corporations can't directly give in at least in America and I think most places can't directly give to political candidates, but so so I mean if if you're in a, a meeting and someone comes up with that, I mean, you, you I'm telling you people would just think you're insane. Because they'd say, okay, well, even if we were to accept that what you say is even remotely feasible, where are we going to get the fifty billion dollars for to, to 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 get and train a giant a giant army? Well, it's like we'll raise prices for our consumers. You know, we'll charge them double for everything and invest the extra profits in an army. Well, what's the problem with that? Oh yeah, well, pe- people don't really care about conquest that much. It it's kind of like how the, the government was saying. Well, the industrial revolution was you know hurting the workers, and so we should have had regulation. Meanwhile, oh no no hang on no sorry, the guy says we'll double the prices to build an army. Oh, I'm sorry. So oh, what well, would what would the other business people say about that? The other business people would look at it as an opportunity to attract more customers through having lower prices. Yeah, the people in the room would say so. You're doubling the prices while reducing our investment in R&D because you're diverting money to a an army. So you're doubling prices while providing the same or less value. So immediately, right? I mean, price, supply and demand, right? Immediately, your customer demand is going to collapse, right? And and other people are going to move in. So you can't get it by raising, um, by raising uh, prices. Maybe you can get it by borrowing, Right. Okay. So then you have to go and borrow fifty billion dollars. Okay, and then you have to pay interest on that money, and it is now a liability which destroys the value of your shares. Right? Because you know share price is somewhat related to assets and liabilities and all that other kind of good accounting stuff. And so you've just taken on a fifty billion dollar liability. Well, your shareholders are damn well going to want to know what that fifty billion dollars is for because they've just saw, saw the price of their stocks collapse. Right. And if you're going to say, oh, no, don't worry, the price of your shares are going to collapse, but don't worry, I'm building a giant army so we can take over the entire geographical region and impose our will on everyone, well, are your shareholders going to be very keen on that? No, not like No, of course not. No, I mean, they don't want some giant army that, that I don't know what's going to happen to it in the long run, but, you know, even if you want to do good with it, who knows what the next guy is going to do with them, be like some African warlord and keep heads in a fridge or something. Who knows, right? So, <laughs> yeah. 
so you, I mean, you could go through a variety of different scenarios. You could issue more share prices. You could sell off assets and all this. But basically, you are going to be negatively impacting your company's value by at least $50 billion. Now, how are your customers going to feel about you building a giant army? They're not going to see it as good, like exactly good PR for. Uh, no, it's pretty bad PR, and yeah. And where are you going to get all of this stuff from? Do you, do you think, are people not going to notice that you're assembling a giant army? Like, I mean, the the whole again in a, in a state of freedom in a free market, the idea. And I go into this in more detail in Practical Anarchy, uh, which is free. You can get it at freedomainradio.com/slash/free. I've read it. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So so you know that I, I won't go into the details further, but we, we get the general argument that if if you said let's borrow fifty billion dollars and make some giant army, um you would just be like admitted to an ins- asylum for economic incompetence. I mean that only works when you're a government. If you try and do that as a private co- a private corporation, it's not uh, it's not going to work. So there's, you know, they need to counter these well, arguments, right? Yeah, well, what the what the and comes and and kind of I I'm honestly like fearful of you know people you know today if they don't completely change their mindset if a corporation had said you know what uh, I know we're private but it looks like uh, this other corporation is going to invade us because of our freedom and how and how great our products are so we're going to have to tax we're going to have to uh, have everyone in this area chip in just a dollar, just a dollar. Uh, if you don't like it, you can move and just chip in a dollar to us and then we're going to protect you. And then that is the slippery slope into a state forming and a form of taxation come like arising within a geographical area. Yeah, I mean, I understand that. Um, that to me is sort of similar to a completely free market being threatened by a slave economy. Do you think that could ever – like do you think that, that a free market with in agriculture could be outcompeted by a slave economy in agriculture? Uh, no. Well, because that's, the, that's direct slavery where you have the person working completely for the plantation owner. Whereas yeah, it's, if, it's it's horribly inefficient. You, you don't you don't invest in capital equipment to increase productivity. You don't optimize uh, because you've got slaves, right? So you so it's it's horribly inefficient. Slavery uh, economically is horribly inefficient relative to the free market. And so, if you have some statist country that wants to invade you, uh, basically that is, and 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 you have a free market in defense. That is the same as saying, well, let's have a slave farm compete with a completely free market farm. Like it's just not going to happen. Um, they, they don't just appear out of nowhere. Um, and uh, uh, you, you would, want, of course, want to unite the two geographical regions economically as much as possible because, as Bastiat pointed out, when goods stop following – when goods stop crossing – sorry, when goods stop crossing borders, soldiers start crossing borders. You know, when you have oh, yeah. economic when, ties, right? When so good- you'd, you'd want to set up all these economic ties. You'd want to have uh, – things would be incredibly proactive. Like whatever issues that came up would be dealt with by dispute resolution organizations, which could work with governments as well, and and okay. they would be very proactive. And if there was any murmurings towards war and so on, I mean, I, I'd put my money on the free market defense uh, organizations than I would some giant sloth-filled, drafted government monstrosity of bureaucracy and coercion. I just don't think it would get very far. Sorry, you were going to say something? 
Oh, no, and that's why I, I really dislike when libertarians are called isolationists, as in we are not isolated from China. We completely trade with them. We trade billions of dollars with them in Canada, but we don't have military there. In other words, the true isolationists are the Republicans and the Democrats who constantly want to send military forces in there. So it really is the Bastiat kind of principle of, if goods don't cross borders, troops surely will. Um, yeah, and vice versa. And, you know, in, in terms of isolationists, the people I feel are most isolated are the victims of the drug war and other unjust government laws that are isolated in prison. I mean, that to me is uh, much more important in terms. Isolation is just one of these, you know, I, I just, now that I'm older, and I, I didn't really like this too much when I was younger either, but. You know, when somebody just starts throwing words around like wage slave and isolationist and racist and misogynist, and I just like, okay, so you're just basically going to push emotional buttons until you get your way, but I'm not going to pretend that that has anything to do with reasoned debate. Okay, so th- th- that's actually something else I wanted to touch on. Like 99% of the people that I talk to have like no interest in like the philosophical well, taxation is theft, therefore it's immoral. Like, they're really just on the level of America's rich. If the government takes by force from some people, those people aren't starving, therefore it's justified. We don't need to get into a philosophical argument. So it, it's all right to take from people who have a lot and give to those who don't have as much. How do you communicate to those people who don't care about philosophy at all? They just see on the surface a little bit of money taken in their opinion and then poor being, I I, I mean, I I really don't know if they truly believe the poor are being helped by what's happened since LGBT's, since LBJ's great society. But uh, assuming they think these welfare programs help the poor, how do you respond to them? Well, it depends. I mean, if, if they have more money, I just ask them to give me some money. (laughs) Right. I mean, I'd say, well, what do you make? I'd say, well, it's private. It's like, well, do you make more than X, whatever I make? Oh, okay. Well, then, so you're richer than me, so give me some money. If if this is a principle that you think is right and fair, then it's like, oh, well, it has to be more extreme than that. Right. So they'd sort of say that. Okay. It's okay. So then we have kind of like a sliding principle, right? So what percentage does it go from being wrong to being right? Right. So if somebody's 10% poorer, is that wrong? If they're 40%, 41%, you know, I mean, get them to understand that. The adjectives do not a definition make, right? Mm. Like, take from the rich and give to the poor. It's okay, well, who's the poor? Who's the rich? I mean, would they – I mean, would you rather be poor now or rich 50 years ago? I'd rather be poor now. Uh, yeah. I mean, rich 50 years ago. I mean, just look at dentistry for God's sakes. I mean, look at chemotherapy. I mean, look at – I mean, God, you just a chance to live through things that you never would have lived through before, right? So what, what is rich and what is poor? And also, so so that's one one aspect of it, right? To to get them to people at some point when when people are trying to play the shaded game, then at some point they have to slice and dice it into incomprehensibility, right? So okay, somebody's sixty percent poorer, it's moral, let's say, right? Fifty nine point nine percent evil, theft, sixty percent moral redistribution, <laughs> right? I mean. If somebody and if somebody doesn't even blink an eye at that, well, then I find that to be kind of incomprehensible. Like if if people are playing that sort of game of degrees, 
then you have to try and start to get them to nail it down. So because this oh, stuff yes, has to be so. in law, right? I mean, you can't just sort of say, well, take from the rich and give to the poor. That's not a law. You have to say at what proportion, at what percentage, at what, you know, does it become moral uh, and so on, right? So, okay, uh, and of course, also then the rich uh, take from the poor as well uh, in, in a variety of ways. Uh, sorry, you were going to say? Well, yeah, and, and, and the the degree game, uh, obviously, I, I feel is completely legitimate in that sense. But when it comes to guys like Matt Zwolinski who say, okay, so the non-aggression principle is moral. Okay, so you wouldn't scratch the tip of my fingernail to save a hundred human lives, it, it, even if I said you can't touch my my fingernail. Okay, well, therefore, the non-aggression principle... Oh, hello? Like the non-aggression principle. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, you just vanished and came back for a sec there, but... Um... Yeah, so so they 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 play the argument of scratch my fingernail to save a uh, hundred lives. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that was remember Matt Zwolinski. You read an article of his. How do you? Re- yeah. Okay. No, but so, okay. So I mean, if, if Matt was here, then I would say to him that when he proposes taking from the rich and giving to the poor through the power of law, he's talking about a universal law that will be enacted against billions of people every day, forever. Nobody will be able to evade it. Nobody will be able to escape it, right? So he's talking about the literal enactment against billions of people for all time of coercive redistribution, right? So that's going to be 100% of people's existence. And then to counter that, he says some completely made-up scenario that never will happen about scratching someone's fingernail (laughs) and 100 people dying. Like, I mean, that can't be a serious comparison, you have billions of people on one side and then one thing that might occur once every million years on the other. <laughs> like that that's just not a valid way scale, you know. <laughs> Does that sort of make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but 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 they legitimately think that that is, you know, like Peter Singer, you're walking across a pond and you see a boy drowning, do you help him? Ah, therefore, Social Security, Medicare, food stamps are all justified because you would help a boy out of a pond. I mean, that's right. And that, 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 that's the equi- no, but that's the equivocation of taking charity and turning it into force, right? Again, yeah, that's yeah. that's uh, you know, the, 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 would you shoot someone who didn't help the boy? Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Right. That's the, the, that's the question. The moment they start, I mean. Social security, all these cuddly words, you know, it's like the, 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 yeah. the gun-toting teddy bear of socialism is usually not very convincing to people who think in principles so because, with- because the question is not should you save or should you help and so on. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think generally you should if you can, but I am not willing to shoot someone who doesn't. So is there any justification for, the, for Prohan saying property is theft, as in if you die – and you have two kidneys, and you are not an organ donor, and I have two lives that can be saved by donating your kidneys against your will that you have left, is it okay for me to take the kidneys out of your dead body and save two lives? Yeah, see, I mean, again, all of this stuff is is kind of nonsense. I mean, the, the, the more well, accurate analogy is to say, is abstinence rape? Oh, okay, but but in, in reality, there are people. No, hang on, hang on. Let me let me just explain that one for a sec, right? So, if if I have a vagina, say in my pocket, now if I have a vagina, and I choose not to bestow my sexual favors upon men, 
then I am keeping my vagina for myself, right? Okay. And is that rape? Well, of course it's not. Of course it's not. So why is a kidney different from any other organ? See, people always want to talk about kidneys and stuff because you could theoretically give some out of it, right? But people always short-circuit them when you start talking about, say, vaginas or butt cracks in prison or something like that, right? Well, because, because a butt crack isn't going to save a life. Where they see as kidneys, if someone dies today, e- even if someone dies today, it, they could take their kidneys by force, granted against their will, and give it to two people on the kidney list. Obviously, the reason there's a kidney list is because there's not a free market for organs, and it's illegal to sell them. But either way, um, it's illegal to take a dead man's kidneys and give them to two people who could survive by giving them the kidney. So that's where right. the argument property is theft has any legitimacy, I, I feel. You mean if I keep my kidneys, I'm stealing somebody else's uh, I, I'm saying, life? I'm saying if you are dead and two, two other people would die, that is the only justification for a doctor taking out your kidneys after you are dead. Oh, after you're dead. Sorry, was it before or after? So, oh, if you're not an organ donor. I'm sorry. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, so you've died, and there are two kidneys there with you, and you're dead. There are two other people. Th- this could this could literally happen today, where someone mm-hmm. dies and their kidneys are able to be transferred, and there are two other people on the kidney waiting list. Is it okay? right? But again, sorry, but as as I think we've explained it. So, but but as you pointed out, I mean, if people are paid. $2,000 to to offer up their kidneys after death? Do, do you think we'd have any shortages of kidneys? <laughs> of course we wouldn't, right? Oh, no. Obviously, the government is the problem by outlawing organ sales, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get to the to, 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 to like the base of, you know, if you have kidneys and you're dead and you don't give them to someone, is that theft or, you know, it, and then it goes to Peter Joseph's. If you have an extra room in your house and there's a homeless person, you are the cause of that person being homeless, which is obviously ridiculous. But I'm I'm really trying to find the equilibrium between property rights and to the point where you have a duty to give another human being, as maybe Immanuel Kant would argue, uh, you have a duty to give someone else something that you have if it means life or death for them. Have you ever faced that situation? Uh, I have not. Uh, fortunately, I'm in a uh, l- lower middle class neighborhood. But believe it or not, my my parents are well divorced, but they're postal workers, and uh, and and my mom's a government teacher. So I'm I'm drowning in a, a status swamp here. That I've actually had two family members uh, say that they will no longer speak with me because I'm I'm not a, a Democrat. Wow, sorry to hear that. No. It's- um, Doing me a favor. So, yeah, maybe. So, uh, so yeah. I mean, this idea that that yes, people can certainly people can certainly invite homeless people into their into their house. Absolutely, they can. Um, and that's to me, that's perfectly fine. If if people want to do that, people can give money to charities to help out the homeless and so on. But uh, as far as I understand it, a lot of homeless people, of course, suffer from significant mental problems. And uh, it may not be wise or safe or hygienic or medically helpful to bring homeless people into your 
house, right? I mean, you would, you'd want to take them, if you could, uh, take them to uh, see some sort of professional, right? Uh, the homeless person, of course, might not want to be in your house. I mean, lots of different things that, that occur. But, um, and, and I, I understand the emotional impetus behind these arguments, which is, you know, but this person's dying or this person's homeless and this person's right and so on, right? Yeah. And uh, I, I understand all of that. My issue is not, you know, philosophers should think in the long term, right? My, my issue is not this person right now. I mean, there were so many homeless people uh, in the Middle Ages. It was ridiculous, right? And sure. everyone putting the homeless people up in their houses would have just made more people starve to death. So the purpose, I think, of a long-term goal in society is to increase the wealth of society so that all but voluntary poverty remains pretty much obsolete. I mean, nobody dies of scurvy anymore or, or polio, really, I mean, at least in the West, or smallpox or, or you know, these, these sorts of things. And that has occurred as a result of, of science and the free market and, and all the good stuff that medicine has produced. And so to me, if, if somebody is upset about homelessness, I mean, I get it. There's people who, who need help in the here and now, and I think that's a fine thing to do. But the generation of wealth is by far the best way to deal with homelessness in the long term. Uh, the, the reduction of the barriers to the creation of wealth and to the creation of jobs and to the expansion of the economy is the best way to deal with poverty and homelessness and so on, and even missing kidneys by allowing a marketization of organs. Absolutely. And yeah. so that is, you know, people can set up these emergency scenarios in the short run if they want, but um, if people understand the difference between the Middle Ages and today, just in terms of lifespan and height and health and number of teeth by the time you're 30 kind of thing, I think they would understand that, that there's a longer picture than playing whack-a-mole with all the dysfunctions in society at the moment. That what we want to do is to make uh, more job opportunities available. Uh, and, of course, decriminalize. There was some guy in the U.S., 90 years old, who just got arrested for feeding the homeless and stuff, right? I don't know why. I didn't even read the article, but you can read this kind of stuff all the time. Just reduce the uh, the um, uh, better parenting. I mean, I think better parenting helps in terms of mental health and uh, fewer of what I consider to be pretty negative medicines for mental health, um, the psychotropics and so on. It's just my particular opinion. Yeah. And uh, better schools and um, better support systems, um, which, you know, as the government has weighted in with, you know, Medicare, Medicaid and welfare and Social Security and so on, it's just elbowed aside all of the beneficial social connections and institutions that you t used to genuinely support people rather than just give them checks. And so there's lots of things that have been displaced that have increased that. And so, yeah, for people who want to help homeless uh, people in the moment, I think that's fantastic. You know, I uh, donate money to help kids around the world. I know it's not going to change their societies into anarchic paradises, but, you know, they do need food and, and medicine in the moment. So I think that's good and helpful. But it is also important to recognize the value of working to grow the economy and reduce the barriers to, to trade and occupation. You know, I mean, how many people would be less poor if a third of Americans didn't need permission from the government to earn a dollar through some sort of licensing or something like that? I mean, it would be much better, so... So, I mean, again, I, I don't want to sort of say, well, you know, then, then, you know, screw the poor right now. We're going to build a paradise in 50 or 100 years or 200 years. Um, I get that that doesn't really help people who need help in the here and now. But uh, 
yeah, help people in the here and now. But the moment you start start dragging, dragging the government in, you really have unleashed something that you can't control anymore. You you can't. So this idea, well, we're just going to get, you know, we're going to take money from the top 10%, we're going to give them to the bottom 20%. It's like, that is not the nature of political power. I mean, you are lighting a match in, you know, neck deep in gasoline. Well, I'll just light this little bit of gasoline over here. It's like, well, but that's not the way political power works. The, the great temptation is to say, well, a little nudge here and a little nudge there, and suddenly everything's better. But that's not how political power works. So... um Social Security was, as far as I remember, originally supposed to be self-funding. And then, of course, governments just came along and, or politicians came along and stole like crazy and left these dusty old IOUs in the bank vaults. And now it's just a forcible transfer of wealth from the poorer, i.e. the younger, to the richer, i.e. the older. And that is um, what happens when you set these events in motion. Because people talk about these incentives. Well, corporations have this incentive to maximize for humana humana. Well, the same thing is exactly true of everyone you put in power of this awesome political system, of this awe-inspiring capacity or machinery of violence called the state, that everyone you, you consider to be corrupt in a corporate sense will be equally, if not more so, corrupt in a political sense. And the idea that you can just wave these magic words in the abstract void of human space and have them spell out the words you want from here to eternity, despite all of the immense corruption of power, uh, is uh, a a fantasy. Uh, So when people talk about, you know, well, kidneys, this, and it's like, well, that's all great. I mean, you can design whatever you want, but we're not talking about robots or computers or mechanosets here. We're talking about ego-driven, incentive-driven human beings. And the power corrupts. And so whatever you design, it's not going to stay that way. I mean, this has been true of everything that I've ever seen with regards to the government. So um, I think it's important to give people a bit of historical perspective and to remind them that all the people they rail against in the market are going to be exactly the same people that are going to be in charge of their system and are going to have exactly the same, if not more, incentives to do do ill. So anyway, I'm going to move on to the next caller, but some great, great questions. Uh, I really, really appreciate you bringing them up. I, I always find it fun uh, to, to chat about these kinds of issues. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much, Stefan. And, uh, and, and, and just one last thing. I, I mean, Noam Chomsky talks so much trash about right libertarians. I really wish you would debate him on anarcho-capitalism. That would be like the greatest thing ever. Uh, again, I just want to thank you for putting on the best philosophy show that I, I've ever watched, and, uh, and and thank you again for taking time for me. Uh, I, I know it's I, I know it's uh, been been a long call. Thank you again. Oh, I appreciate that, and I would be very happy to debate Noam Chomsky. Um, I'm just not going to do it in 15 minutes when he's got no advance warning. So <laughs> I'm not a big fan of jumping people, but uh, thanks, I appreciate that. And Mike, who do we have next? All right. Up next is Nathaniel. He wrote in and said, in a universe that is ruled by physical law with models of reality that can predict future events without fail, how is the human brain any different and not subject to cause and effect? So the brain is made of matter. Matter is deterministic. Therefore, the brain is deterministic. Um, it would seem so. Well, why would you talk to me then rather than a chair? Um, the chair if, can... No, because if all matter if, if all matter is deterministic, then there's no fundamental difference in talking to me versus talking to a chair. Oh, yes, there is. Because if I talk to the chair, it's not going to say anything back. No, I, under- I understand that. But you can't change my mind because the outcome of our conversation is predetermined. So I'm not sure what 
you would be engaged in. I'm no more capable of changing my mind than a chair is of changing its position, right? Um, I mean, I don't, I don't go over to a chair and coax it to move forward. Come right. on. I don't put down little bits of chair kibble saying, come on, boy, come on, here you go. Good love seat, come on. Get into a nice position for daddy to watch Downton, <laughs> right? I mean, that's not... I, I don't do that. And if I did that, people would say, well, the, the chair is matter and, and it can't move, right? It has no will. It has no choice. Its, its position is determined by physical forces, right? Right. Um, and the same is true for, for, for me in the deterministic universe, right? So you're, you're basically trying to convince a chair to move. Um, not, not in the same way because I'm not trying to convince you that um, determinism is true. My object is not to convince you. Um, I find it that you, you say that free will is true, um, when everything else in our universe seems to follow these sets of laws. Um, Free will is true? That's, that's your summary of my argument? (laughs) That can't be what you think I've really just said. Like, I just did a three-part, I did a three-part series, and it wasn't me just putting my ears, heads in my ears and repeating free will is true for an hour and a half. Um, yes, and I've watched that. I believe that your definition of free will was the um, is the human capacity to. Um, let's see, I have it. Write it down. It's to. Com- I don't. It doesn't matter if you remembered it off the head, top of your head or not. But it's uh, the capa- our capacity to compare proposed actions or theories to ideal standards. Yes, um, because because without that, the word truth has no meaning. Right. And so I, I don't I don't think I've ever said something as reductionist as free will is true because that basically is a tautology. What is free will? Right. Well, it's defined as true. What is true? Well, it's defined as free will. Okay, well, you've just said A is A, but you haven't oh, really added okay. anything, right? Okay. So, uh, so I wouldn't make that argument. Um, that's along the lines of property is theft. It's like that doesn't really add anything to the, to the intellectual mix. But what I would say is that in the same way that it's impossible to argue against self-ownership without exercising self-ownership, I think it's impossible to argue against free will without having a standard of truth, a higher value of truth, and a desire to have your mind or the mind of other people conform to the standard called truth, which is my definition of free will. See how that kind of works? I mean, okay. I'm not saying it proves, but it so I just – I really uh, resist uh, – yay to my very dying breath. I resist like crazy self-detonating arguments, right? So in a deterministic universe, there can be no such thing as truth. And so if people say to me determinism is true or valid, then they're saying that which is impossible in a deterministic universe is necessary to a deterministic universe. Well, that can't work. I mean just logically that can't work, right? And so that's my um, – that's my argument in a very, very uh, brief nutshell. Okay. Um, and that's as, as how I understood it. I'm just very nervous, and um, my thoughts are kind of jumbled. Um, oh, no, no problem. Um, my, my – and I think we've got sort of on the wrong foot – is um, my, my issue is not whether determinism is true. Uh, my issue is that um, when we look for um, uh, models of reality – we see how they how they act in when we uh, propose them. Um, so it seems that everything in the universe follows laws, 
And then when we get to the human brain and the human consciousness, we say, no, 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 no. There's an extra thing there that's going on. Right, right. And now that does not mean that it's lawless, right? Right. It, oh, it, it, okay. It, so it that, means that I mean I, I'm not the opposite of of determinism is not randomness, right? Right. And so I think we can reasonably say there's something very unusual about the human mind, and it's singular in the universe that we know of. And we treat the human mind as different from inanimate matter always, um, and we treat the human mind as different from the minds of, let's just say, for the sake of argument, the lower animals, like the protozoas and trilobites and all that kind of stuff. And so the reason why I think it's worthwhile not creating exceptions, because that's magical thinking to say, well, we've got this rule, and then we have a magical exception, right? Right. I mean, the reason why I think it's worthwhile thinking that there's something quite different with the human mind than there is from everything else that we know of in the universe is that we treat it so enormously differently. Because think of a row of 10 balloons and the, the, the fifth balloon is a human mind. You know, just, but, it, but it looks like all the other balloons. Because yeah. that, in the deterministic universe, there's no difference between the balloon and the human mind. Right. Which is complicated, but it's more complicated, but it doesn't mean it's any more chosen, right? Now, if these are all balloons and everyone who walks in only talks to the fifth balloon, only gets upset at the fifth balloon, only tries to woo the consciousness or the mind of the fifth balloon, and would imagine talking to any of the, of the other balloons to be completely insane. And will only consider talking to the fifth balloon, where if you talk to the first, second, third, fourth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth balloon, that would be the actions of an insane person. For the determinist to only talk to the fifth balloon and consider talking to any of the other balloons insane, and then to say the balloons are all the same, doesn't make any sense, right? Um, sort of. We're saying that the fifth balloon has consciousness, right? Yes. Okay, well, then it is not the same because, well... No, no, no. In a deterministic... I agree it's not the same. But in a deterministic universe, it is not... It is it is the same as the balloon. It's more complicated, but so is the weather. The weather right. is very complicated. We can't predict it with any accuracy. We can predict general trends in the same way we can right. general trends in human society, but we can't predict the weather. It's very complicated, and nobody says the okay. weather is conscious, and you don't get angry right. at the weather for raining on your wedding, right? But um, all these things aren't conscious, and I'm when I, when I say conscious, I'm not saying it has some other attribute besides what happens in reality. So let me go back. Um, I would say I wouldn't argue with the fifth balloon that has consciousness because there's no way I could know if it does. It has no way of interacting with me. So I wouldn't talk to that balloon because there's no way I could know it has consciousness. Okay, but are you defining, you're defining consciousness as just another behavior of matter like the weather? Um, yes. Okay. You would never talk to the weather, right? Right even though it's very complex and you can't predict it. Right. Okay. You would never talk to a computer program that simply repeated back to you what you said, right? Right. 
like talking Bob on the talking car talking Carl oh, I haven't used it in years but my daughter liked it when she was younger talking mm-hmm. Carl on the iPhone or whatever right and in order to have a conversation you would require consciousness on the other side yes right and so and and to have a conversation with something that was not conscious would be insane yes right i mean i know people talk to plants so just you know but nitpickers forgive me for a moment or the people who think that plants have consciousness right 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 and so uh, but yeah people talk to plants but they don't have conversations with plants right (laughs) unless they have right 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 unless they have really fly trap right Mm -hmm. in which case check your meds man but um so so my only point is that determinists cannot say that consciousness is the same as everything else while treating consciousness as uniquely different from everything else uh, I would have I would have to I, I would have to agree, but if we're it it has an attribute which is different, right? Um, yes. And and, si- it, and singular and and nothing else even comes close. Right. Um, so I'm I'm not trying to argue that consciousness is different. I see it as a evolutionary step that we have taken. It is still determined. Well, no, I see see that. But see then, you you're back to the problem that if consciousness is determined, then it's exactly the same as every other complex system that you cannot predict but can generally under, understand. Yeah. And I would Right. Argue so that it is so same. then you're saying it's the same as sunspots, it's the same as uh, the weather on Jupiter or or on Earth. Uh, it's the same as Brownian motion. It's you know whatever it is. It doesn't matter whether you can predict it all or not. The, the The fact is that you are only having a conversation with an entity you say is the same fundamentally as everything else. I'm having that is com- not that's not rational though. I'm having a um. I am giving inputs to the only thing in the universe which can react um in a sort of complex way to those inputs. If I throw a rock. Um, it falls to the ground. If I throw you, you react in a totally different way. Okay. Um, but uh, I'm still a rock. I'm just an unpredictable rock. Um, no, you're a pretty predictable rock. I mean... Mm, no, if I was that predict, I mean, if I was as predictable as a rock, you would be interested, right? Right. Th- it's because is- there's some level of unpredictability, right? Some level of unpredictability, yes. And that is also true of other animals. I mean, if, if, if sometimes if you chase a wolf, it will run away. And sometimes if you chase a wolf, it will chase you back, right? Right. But that doesn't mean just because it's unpredictable that there's not a set of um, laws that it could follow. That the, the, re, the action between input and output, there is no laws. When you tell me that there's free will, you say that there – to me, it kind of says you say there are no laws. Um, that no, no, no. See, and, and when I say there is free will, I, again, I think that's I'm, – look, I'm sure I've said it, so I'm right, not trying to – Right, sort of, right, right. Ah, you're misquoting me. I'm sure I've said it. But that's an um, imprecise way of putting it. What I would probably say to you at this moment is I cannot figure out how to argue against volitional consciousness – without using and talking to volitional consciousness. I can't figure out how to say the brain is the same as everything else while treating it as specific and unique in its own right. 
Well, we do that with like all the chemicals are specifically different unto themselves, right? But they are similar to other things. I understand that, but there's nothing. There's nothing that's similar to human consciousness, right? Like you, you don't sort of say, "Well, this guy's engaged in conversation, so I guess I'll strike up a chat with the potted plant," right? I mean, there's no right. there's no backup to conversation with a human being, right? Right. I mean, you could, I guess, make some hand signals with Coco the gorilla or whatever. But the reality is that as far as philosophy goes or, or concepts go, that there's really no, to my knowledge, right, there's no, there's no significant backup. Like, I mean, maybe you could speak about something with a monkey. I don't, like, I don't know. People are telling me all these kinds of things every time I talk about animal rights and I, right, right. I just haven't had time to research it. But I don't think that anyone would say, well, Noam Chomsky couldn't make it, but Noam Chimsky right, that the ape is here uh, instead, so, okay, right? Right. Well, it, it would so, make... so what I'm saying is that there's, there's you say that the chemicals are like each other, but the human consciousness is not like anything else that we know of. Right, and that's because we have a, we have this capacity to um, set universal standards, right? And I, I think that why we have that is because it is preferable to have, like, for once, if we have, if we are able to establish these standards, then our actions changes. Where to other animals, they have to develop biologically over time to have a chemical impulse in their brain to cause them to have different actions. I, right. I think that, or uh, I think that this, um, that we have evolved this consciousness because it is a quicker evolutionary step to those previous actions. Yeah, I think neuroplasticity and uh, uh, this kind of ad- adaptation that we do on the fly is, I mean, one of our most amazing capacities as a species. It may, may be one of the most defining capacities that we have as a species. So I, I think you and I are in agreement on that. Right. Um, so I'm not quite sure if we're, we're arguing sort of the same thing because when you – and I know you've went over this, but when – People say that uh, we have free will. What I see is an action going into our brains, a neuron being fired, chemicals being released, and we either have positive um, traits to do a certain action. That's what I see. And I, I can't call that free will. Well, yeah, I, I mean, but the pro- I mean you, you realize, of course, I have not definitively proven free will from a neurological yes. standpoint. Right. Yes, yes, I looked at you. And, actually, um, and, and if I had, I, I don't know, I'd be on your, um, uh, sailing on your down the Danube with, uh, uh, I don't know, some Nobel Prize your, bikini model on my lap, which would th- be my wife. But anyway. three, on your three-part series, you actually mentioned that. It was like I haven't definitively – Yeah, so, so, so when you say, well, the brain operates this way, I'm like, well, okay. okay. <laughs> you know, I, I'm okay. not a neurologist. I'm a neuroscientist. I mean I, I'm fine with that. So my arguments are not biological. My arguments are philosophical. I okay. think it has okay. – if it's a philosopher rather than a biologist. So my arguments are basically I, I, can't, I can't treat the human brain as unique while saying it's just fundamentally the same as everything else. Like I just and, – and nobody can. Because you have conversations with people, not plants. Right, right. I, I, w- I would, I would agree. I mean, it's not. And the so same all, as all that means is that. Sorry, and, and all that. I'm sorry to interrupt, but all that means doesn't prove free will from a biological standpoint. That may happen at one point. It may not. I don't know. Probably will at some point. But right. but what it means is that, like in in the same way, can you biologically prove self ownership? 
I guess you can in a way, right? Because it's your brainstem, your spine, and all that kind of stuff, right? But I mean, to me, that's not particularly interesting or useful because if it if everyone requires a PhD in neuroscience to understand if it's ever figured out free will, that doesn't explain how we have it or why people instinctively right. treat human beings as fundamentally different from everything else on the planet. Uh, and so my f- argument is is self-contained. You know, uh, uh, philosophy works best when it's self-contained, when you don't need a reference to to some other body of knowledge. And so this is why in the formulation of my arguments, wherever possible, I don't mind bringing in empiricism, and empiricism is the foundation of reason. But wherever possible, I like arguments that are self-contained. Okay. And so my argument is not, well, we have free will, and if you push this button here, you know, it magically reveals itself as a pixie in the brain. What I'm saying is that we, nobody can logically say the brain is like everything else because everybody treats the brain as uniquely different. That, that's, that's my entire – I mean that's my entire argument from a sort of philosophical standpoint. Now, it gets into then you know, truth and changing people's minds and, and so on, but – you know, it really is saying these balloons are all the same. To talk to those nine balloons would be completely insane, but to talk to this balloon is perfectly sane. Well, then the balloons can't all be the same, just just logically, right? Right. And um, and that that, that doesn't that doesn't prove it. It doesn't answer the question, but it means that nobody can say the brain is like everything else. I mean, they can say it if they want, but right. they just they've just contradicted right. themselves because they're almost all, they're saying it to another brain, pretty much, right? Right. Okay, that gives me because I was wondering on your last um, the last uh, call you did on determinism. It was kind of weird to me because there was a lot of things that got misconstrued. There was this whole thing on um, antimatter that was completely misrepresented. Yeah, I, I really have to do. Uh, I used to read a lot more about physics. Mm-hmm. I really did. I used to be pretty boned well, up on uh, pocket protector. Uh, 3D worlds, but holy, I mean, I'm so far behind the times it's, these it's, days, it's ridiculous. It's, it's really hard to discern what is pop physics from actual academic physics. And then it's really hard to see who's actually saying what's right. Well, and, and what they're talking about now is, you know, a little bit beyond Copernicus, right? right I mean, right. Uh, it's, you know, hey, Ptolemy, Ptolemaic system, Copernicus, got it. You know, mm-hmm. um, human genome project, yeah, I can kind of follow a, a good chunk of that stuff. But, you know, 27 dimension string theory with dark matter thrown in and a topped whipped cream of I don't know what the hell's going on anymore. I don't know. I, I'm sorry. I just I have right. to let go of, of that ship that sails into the dark because I just don't know if it comes back. It's kind of like what I do with philosophy sometimes is that if I don't really understand it, I defer to another source until I do. Now, but good philosophy you should be able to follow. I think. Right, right. Like, right? uh, I mean, there's um, some, I mean, you know, like, I don't know, like, introduction to objectivist epistemology is pretty mm-hmm. technical, and there's some other stuff that's kind of technical. Right. But good philosophy, I, I think you should, I mean, I, I've, to varying degrees of success, I've always tried to work on that principle. Good philosophy should be comprehensible, because philosophy should serve the vast majority of people. In other words, you should be able to break it down to somebody with an IQ of 80 to 85. Right. And not that I'm doing that in this conversation, but in general, I try to make it as approachable as possible. That's the beauty of the self-contained arguments is you don't mm-hmm. have to, you know, if you've got to Google it, it probably isn't philosophy anymore, <laughs> so right. to speak. And uh, so 
Um, but the science, I mean, where science is these days is particularly physics is uh, just so far out there for for me at least, mm-hmm. and so far removed from the sense based philosophy I mean, that I think is important to people, and certainly from ethics, it's immaterial to ethics. As, uh, fascinating though it is. Sorry, go ahead. As as a um, someone who studied physics, the majority of what you learn, you go into more advanced physics and find out that's not quite true. So yeah, 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 yeah. To, uh, go to the that was an approximation for the masses. Right. Now we take you into Platonic, the Platonic Temple of Truth, and you'll never be right, able to right, go back. Right, right. Right. Um, that was a leading. Well, um, well so um, what, where we have got with this argument is that um, free will is uh, true, sort of true in a um, conceptual, um, philosophical sense, but in a uh, biological sense. Um, that still unproven. remains to yeah be biologically found. it's not again true is 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 hard it, true true it, true is a tough right because because I mean true true has a number of different forms which I sort of won't get uh, into here definitional etc yeah I mean so uh, analytic synthetic and so on but but true here would be you can't. You can't both say you can't act as if the brain is unique while claiming it's not. That's that's a self-detonating argument. That's like me saying you don't exist and language is meaningless. Oh yeah. Um, I like also I'm thank you for to, your show. To you and I'm using the meaning right. the comprehensibility. Um, of, I thank you for language. your show Sorry, because um, that concept you started that the the one you just brought up is where I started with philosophy. I started as a, a Wittgensteinian absurdist. Ah. I know, I Excellent. know, right? Um, uh, what a long, I, strange trip it's been, right? Yes, a long, strange trip. Um, and that just so happens because there was a philosopher – I've been looking into philosophy for about seven years, and seven years ago there was these uh, pseudo-intellectuals who don't even do philosophy anymore. And the only other objectivist that kind of um, challenged them was uh, – his name was Mr. Cropper, but he talks with his really monotone, annoying voice, so it was kind of hard to actually take him seriously. Um, and the other two were named uh, Meridian Frost and Azranok. Um, I don't think if you've ever heard of them, you would have to look up them when they – like seven years ago when you first started posting um, stuff to YouTube. But yeah, that's the um, – because it made sense to me because um, Wittgenstein has this uh, concept of a beetle in a box. And even though if we have – you have your beetle and I have my beetle, if we try to talk about it, they're not exactly the same thing because we can't see our um, – we, we don't know what each other's word means to us. And from there, I found uh, uh, Jacques Fresco, who's not really a philosopher, but made the point that language can be um, translated completely between people because when – when we have mathematics and we have um, scientific instructions, one scientist doesn't take that one way and another scientist doesn't take it another. So um, from there, I, I found that words can have um, effective transferable meaning. Yes. Yes. No, no, they can. And uh, I was uh, talking with my daughter oh, – asking my daughter about her experience with concept formation the other day. And you know, the, the great challenge of, of – language to things is how bloody good we are at it mm-hmm. and and how amazing children are at it like i i don't know how my daughter learned to speak so well you know to the point where she's explaining to me what happens in her brain when a concept is formed you know like how do you know this is a chair as a chair well we went into the variety of definitions and all of that she's five i mean and 
we are so good at it and so instinctual at it. Nobody, I, I don't remember teaching my daughter all these words, let alone how to put a sentence together, but she just, you know, picks it up and rolls with it. And she, you know, asks like 20 times a day what, what some word is or whatever, but she rarely needs to ask twice. And so even when she was two, two years old, or even earlier, you know, I could say, pass me the cup, and she would go and get me the cup and pass me the cup. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and then if you put a different colored cup there, she wouldn't say, I don't know what that is. Like, we're so good at it. And um, so, it, it, you know, the idea that we, we just can't transfer meaning and so on, I mean, that, 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 that seems to me too, too extreme a position. Right. Of course, there's definitions and, and so on that everybody needs to work on. But, I mean, we're so amazing at building language in our brains. Uh, it is just, I mean, I mean, a baby's brain is voracious. I mean, I think a third of a baby's energy goes into just growing its growing brain. Its brain. Yeah, oh, um, I mean, it's it's immense and huge and bizarre. But sorry, go ahead. Um, I do have to ask a question because your um, your daughter is actually kind of a model for me to see how um, how your particular parenting style or um, uh, what is it? I'm having a brain fart. Peaceful parenting? Peaceful parenting works. Yeah, yeah. So um, know that I'm looking at your child knowing how to raise my children. <laughs> no um, pressure, honey. No pressure. Um, uh, with your child, uh, about have, did you ever do the uh, the uh, the milk in a glass test, where one glass is uh, wide and the other one is tall, and asked if they knew I, the difference? I don't think I did. No. Okay, I was just wondering at what age you might have, because uh, there's you know what the test is, right? Um, no, I, I'm not aware of it. Okay, um, children can't differentiate. Um, they always think something that's taller is larger. So if you get a glass of milk with the same volu- volume and pour it into a wider glass, they will think the wider glass is is a smaller amount. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, because, of course, they measure their bodies against their parents' bodies, and taller always means bigger. Right, and um, figuring out when they can differentiate, um, even if they don't have – really good communication skills can measure where they are, um, what, what is their intellectual age, which generally right. happens around um, four, four or six is when they can do, differentiate that on average. Now, I assume that when you first do the test, it has to be significantly wider. It's not like half an ounce bigger or anything, right? Um, yeah, they can't be anywhere near the same size. I mean, if you, um, right, if right, you look right. up this video, there's a drastic difference, and it has to do with height. Um, and it has to do with how we perceive things. Um, we perceive things longer if they're tall. We, we literally do this. Like if um, if something's standing up, we perceive it um, longer than if it is um, horizontal. Um, however, we as adults have a uh, – we, we know about object permanence. So we know that when we take a volume of one thing and add it to another, um, it's the same. Right. And uh, children have that problem. And I, right. I wonder if you if you convey that to them through communication, does the does the um does the concept just stick? It's like oh, right, right. Like if I explain that sort of height width thing, right, right. Do they start applying that to everything? That would be an interesting thing to see. Yeah, that's a good good point. I will certainly think about it. Could could be a worthwhile. Buahaha, mad Dr. Frankenstein experiment. But uh, all right, do you mind if we move on to the next caller? And a hugely great uh, call. I really, really appreciate uh, um, this uh, opportunity to further annoy uh, people who 
um, should never be annoyed, i.e. determinist. Just kidding. Mm-hmm. Uh, but thanks very much for, uh, for calling. Um, thank you. You've, you've clarified my mind on some things. Excellent. All right. Up next today is Jamie. And Jamie wrote in and said, in one of your videos, you discussed what an argument is. But I'd like to know when arguments are necessary. Necessary. Interesting word. <laughs> what do you mean? Oh, hey, Stefan, can you hear me? Yes. Um, necessary. I don't know if that is the ideal word. Maybe it's hard to think of a an ideal word, but um, I can actually give you <laughs> an example. This might be a bit of a long explanation, but I think it'll give you a better idea of where I'm coming from because um, I actually found your channel fairly recently, but I consumed a large amount <laughs> in a fairly short period of time. I must have watched about 20% of your videos in a span of eight weeks, and I would occasionally um, look down at comments, and I got the Ooh. impression that you have a bit <laughs> of a catchphrase correct me if i'm wrong but it seems to be a bit bit of a catchphrase they'll say that's not an argument to people (laughs) so that's what i'd like to um question is um if uh you know because it actually seems a bit uh, assumptive to me because uh maybe the person doesn't know what an argument is but there's also the chance that they do know what an argument is they just don't care to make an argument. So uh, I'll stop right there and see what you think about that. I have more to say. All right. Well, let's go to YouTube here. <laughs> Don't do uh, it. <laughs> All right. Are you ready? Uh-huh. Shall we Shall we lower ourselves into the YouTube cesspool? I shouldn't say that. That's, that's, I'm sure there's some fine comments in here. Put on oh. your Ebola-proof suit, everybody. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather breathe my own farts than okay. Um, okay, so here's one from um, uh, John Stewart versus Bill O'Reilly, and uh, this comes from Corpse One. Notice all the SJW. That's um, social justice warrior. Notice all the social justice warrior faggots can't disprove any of his claims, but just dismiss him as a racist or privileged. A great insight into a brainwashed mind. Um, not really an argument. No, no. Um, I, I, right I'm right with, underneath. I, I, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm uh, with I'll just you. read a couple of these and then we'll say why. So let's see here. Um, let's see here. It's all about money with these animals. Bad parenting is why this 325-pound person, let's say, is dead. Uh, that's on uh, a Mike Brown video. Uh, let's see. I'll just do one more here. Just looking for one that's not too uh, not too long. So MGTOWs are bad for society for choosing their own path. That's on the sex and polyamory one. And uh, why is it Steph almost always reduces whatever he's talking to uh, talking about to the state pointing a gun at you or don't hit children? That's on the truth about voting, I think. So none of these are, are arguments. Yeah, um, I, which I, doesn't I, mean that they're completely uninteresting or irrelevant or anything like that. They're they're just not arguments. So, is your question sort of when would it be necessary? Well, yeah, I, I understand. Um, those are not arguments. I am essentially asking: Is it bad to <laughs> to not have an argument, or is it sometimes is it sometimes good to say things that 
aren't necessarily an argument that can actually go oh, yeah that's that's totally fine i mean i honestly i spend a good portion of my day not making arguments yeah right? I, I mean not necessarily on this show but you know sort of in the rest of my civilian life uh, i am spending i spend a good deal of time not actually making any uh any arguments um the the, the the only important thing is that you know whether you're making an argument or not that's what that's what i like right yeah. Um, so, so if people think they're making an argument when they're not, then that's something for a philosopher to, you know, remind them of. I understand. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. No. I, uh, that that makes sense. Um, I, I. I. That was my main point. I just. Uh, it, it did seem uh, assumptive um, because maybe some of these people do know they're not making an argument, but they don't care. But there, there is the chance that maybe they genuinely don't know that what they're saying is not an argument. Um, I can actually go into more more detail just in case anyone listening actually has interest because I read this uh, article by Stephen Reese in uh, 2004. It's called Multifaceted Nature of Intrinsic Motivation, Theory of 16 Drives. And uh, to summarize, essentially, he studied humanity um, to try to figure out, you know, what basic fundamental drives that humans actually have. And uh, I think it's difficult to say with any high degree of confidence that it's exactly 16 drives, but that's, you know, a, a fair estimate I, that he found that um, seems to encompass most people. And I think most people recognize this for some drives, like with the food drive. People know that if you try to go without food, you're going to suffer. And they also know that it's intrinsically rewarding so that most of the time when you do eat food, you feel good. So like people know this about the food drive, they know this about the sleep drive. But I think there's um perhaps other drives that maybe people don't even really think about because um maybe they've never really tried depriving themselves of it. Uh for example, like with the food drive you might go on a diet so you know exactly <laughs> what it's like to do without. But uh one of the drives that uh Stephen Reese noted was uh for social contact and uh at the extreme end, you know, there are probably autistic people that don't have this drive. Then on the other extreme end um, are people that need a lot of uh, socialization um, that feel compelled to tell people about their everyday trivial experiences. Like, uh, for example, some people might stub their toe and they don't feel compelled to tell anyone, ouch, I stubbed my toe today. But like some people might, some people might, it might happen. They feel like, I gotta, I gotta uh, confess or tell this to somebody. <laughs> um, so that, that's what I thought about um, YouTube comments. I think uh, I'd like to consider the possibility that maybe some people actually feel feel they need an outlet like if they if they watch one of your videos and you express some viewpoint that surprises them they might say something like i can't believe stefan actually said that and it might not necessarily be that they disagree with you or agree with you or whatever it just might be they felt surprised and they felt compelled to have an outlet <laughs> you know a social outlet for that um feeling they uh felt uh, so they leave a comment like that I, I don't know what you think about all that yeah i mean i i, I agree that they have you know they obviously want to leave a, a comment mm -hmm. but um i would like people to I, I don't get the sense that people know that they're not making an argument i see you, like, you think a lot of people might genuinely be clueless <laughs> about what an argument is. 
Oh, I, I, I can tell you that I think a lot of people on this planet are pretty clueless about what an argument is. Ah. And, uh, uh, I mean, the, the number of logical fallacies have scarcely declined from the days of Socrates. Yeah. And uh, uh, arguments are hard. You know, they, they're tough. Arguments challenge. Because no argument is ever fundamentally about itself. This is the great challenge that people have with arguments. This is why it is like you pull that thread and the whole sweater comes undone. Because no argument is fundamentally about itself. Arguments, it's like saying that, that the scientific method is fundamentally about one theory or one hypothesis or one experiment. No, those experiments have science, but it is because of the overarching value and validity of the scientific method that somebody would even be pursuing that. In other words, you have to accept the scientific method before you do science. And everything you do is not about itself. It's about the scientific method. That's because that's why you're doing everything that you do as a scientist is through the scientific method. So no argument is fundamentally about itself. And it took me a long time to understand this because I could never understand why people would get so upset about an argument. And that's because, and I don't even want to tell you when it came to me, but that's because all arguments are about the methodology of thinking. And people get upset about any particular argument because they're upset at the methodology of thinking. What does it mean to think? What does it mean to reason? What does it mean to know? What does it mean to convince? What does it mean to be truthful about something? To be honest? I mean, science can't work with fraud. I mean, honesty is the prerequisite for, I think, any human, any decent or reasonable human interaction. Mm. So, people get emotionally invested in their perspectives and they will argue them very strongly and, and vociferously and sometimes aggressively. Yeah, you know, you know, and what? they, oh, go sorry, on. go ahead. Well, I, well they, they do that though, because if they start, like if, if they have a lot of opinions and they feel strongly about some stuff, then they're already invested in a perspective. Now, if a rational and strict methodology comes along, like philosophy or science or math or whatever, then they have to take a step back and evaluate all of it unconsciously because we're universalization machines, basically. And it is deeply disorienting to people who've built their personalities or who have had their personalities inflicted on them through opinions, through ideology through bigotry, nationalism, party affiliations, and so on. Like, in the past, like 50 years ago, only 4 or 5% of people would be upset if their son married the opposite political party, like married someone of the opposite pol political party in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Now it's like 70% or 80% or – I just read this today, but it's some massively higher number. This is how polarized things have become. And, you know, we read comments on the internet and it's always, you know, libtards this and uh, it's not Fox News, it's faux news. And then the Koch brothers come up and, 
and all this stuff and the, the tea party is scorned on and i mean it's all unthinking prejudice from both sides in many ways now if you try to back away from that and if you say you know what it could be that the entirety of my mind is filled with sophistry with unthinking prejudice well what does that do to someone's sense of self sense of identity sense of personhood sense of belonging what does it do to their social circles to evaluate that possibility is deeply disorienting and so for most people it's just easier to double down on the prejudice than it is to clear their mind of the clutter and really start to think from first principles and uh so I think on YouTube I, you know, and, or other places, I don't in particular see people getting upset about any particular argument. I see them continually being upset about the methodology of thinking, which they don't have. And I think that's what animates a lot of, of what people's comments are. And there are you know, some great thinking, useful, helpful comments uh, that have really uh, struck me deeply. Uh, in, but you know, obviously they're in the... Uh, uh, <laughs> in the minority. I see. I, wa- I wanted to know, uh, because you, you mentioned how you found it interesting how upset you know people will be at hearing an argument. And um, that reminded me because uh, Stephen Reese, one of the other drives he noted that's fundamental to most humans is um, the vengeance drive. Uh, you know, people feel, um, often feel compelled um, to have vengeance on someone that that harms them, and, and are actually a lot of people feel quite stressed if they don't, you know, get their their revenge. Um, and that's that's something else interesting to consider. For example, on YouTube comments, um, that some people will not only leave a comment like maybe disagreeing with you, but attack you, you know, say you're an idiot, you're an asshole <laughs> or whatever. And what I find interesting is that, um, and this is somewhat similar to what you're saying, is that uh, you don't, it's very rare at least to hear people get that emotional or to personally attack others if they're, for example, if they have a, um, a mathematical formula that disagrees with, with their answer. You know, they don't, they don't get upset over differences of, of a math e- equation, um, but they do over a difference of a moral opinion. Um, and I wonder if part of it is maybe uh, having that dif- difference of opinion, maybe because they get so emotionally invested in their moral views that um, they actually do see it you know, as, as an attack and that they, they then want revenge, kind of like if someone just randomly slaps you on the back of the head, you might feel compelled to have re- revenge. I wonder if they feel a similar kind of um, feeling when someone provides a different uh, viewpoint. Uh, so yeah, that was just something else I thought <laughs> that's interesting to consider when people leave these comments like, you asshole or you idiot or whatever. Yeah, well, of course, a lot of people are enrolled in an ideology. An ideology in many ways is... giving you permission to to hate here's here's who you can hate you know i mean here's who you can hate and when people have an ideology that gives them permission to to hate 
you know, like I mean, so the Democrats they hate the Koch brothers. They hate them. I don't know. I, I don't even. I don't even. They probably bankroll some right wing think tanks or something like that. I don't even know. But those, you know, now you can hate these people, right? Fox News. I hate those guys, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, it happens on the right too. I'm not trying to sort of. I'm trying to be even handed and so on, but. But once you have bought into something which allows you to hate, and I mean, I I get angry at stuff. I certainly don't spend my days consumed by hatred or anything. But when you have a polarized, I hate those guys. It could be sports teams too. I mean, it could be any number of things, right? Mm-hmm. But once you've configured yourself into an algorithm of permissible hatred it becomes very hard to pull back because now it's a moral thing, right? So um, so if somebody questions the patriarchy, then, well, must be a misogynist, right? That's, like a, that's the way the thinking the, goes the for a lot of people, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the, you know, if somebody questions the, the, the whatever, right? If somebody, if somebody says that the poor are not always victims, well, now you're allowed to hate the person who says that. Because that's just someone who hates the poor or someone who's heartless and cold and cruel and all that kind of stuff, right? I mean, people who are kind of shocked to find out that I grew up dirt poor and because because it doesn't jibe with sort of what I what I say. Mm-hmm. And the same thing, you, you know, you're allowed to hate a racist for the most part, right? So So if you can put someone in that category, that allows you to release some some hatred. And, you know, people, they get... You know, everything you do is is a habit, right? And uh, if you've got a habit of, well, I, you know, my team are the good guys and the other team are the bad guys. And, you know, our team is good and contains in it no evil. And, and the other team is evil and contains in it no good. I mean, this polarization that is, is I think, quite primitive, it is um, it's very tough for people to break out of that habit uh, that's... Uh, um, once you've got ethics, sports does, usually doesn't have ethics and so on. Like a, a video I watched a little while back ago, um, it's called Direct Evidence that Feminists Hate Facts. It's by Pam Mare, M-A-R-E. And uh, it's not in English, but it's interesting. Uh, and it's a guy, I think he used to be a comedian, or maybe he still is. And he goes to a bunch of non if I remember it rightly, it's been a while, but he goes to a bunch of social scientists uh, and uh, talks about, uh, you know, is there any difference between men and women? Uh, and they're all like, no, no, there's no difference between men and women, blah, 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 blah. And then he goes to, to people who are more on the biological sciences and uh, they uh, go through all the, the biological differences that they believe exist between men and women and uh, all the studies and so on. And then he goes back to the social scientists and plays some videos of the social of the more hard scientists contradicting a lot of what the social scientists said. And you can see it. I mean, they just flat out reject what the other people are saying. They don't question. They don't ask to see the studies. They don't ask to look at the data. It just doesn't work, right? Mm-hmm. It just doesn't it doesn't work for them. Mm-hmm. And um, this is not uh, look. I mean, we have to fight ourselves. We fight ourselves all the time it's important you have to i think consistently undermine certainty uh, in oneself and uh, i'm you know someday you know uh, somebody's going to come up uh, with you know some 
maybe some fantastic arguments against one of my core theories. Now they'd be like, holy shit. <laughs> You know, let's uh, see if we can repair the whole whole bridge, Captain. Mm. And uh, so that will need to, uh, uh, and that will be fantastic. I mean, that's how you 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 get things brighter by polishing them. And uh, so, I do think that um, it is a very uh, difficult and dangerous uh, thing to to get into a polarizing ideology. I mean, it's okay to I think dislike immoral people. In fact, I think it would be kind of weird to, to, to like them as much as you like moral people. Hmm. But um, the hatred thing, too, is, uh, is, is pretty tough. Uh, it's a pretty tough emotion to, to, to get into and to sustain. Because the problem is, is you know, anger is, is usually a self-protective measure or a measure to sort of clear your space. Hatred tends to be much more chronic. And hatred tends to really settle into a soul and sort of squat there and take up residence. Because if you've got angry, you know, I mean, the sort of fight or flight mechanism is designed to solve, right? But the sort of stewing and hatred thing, I think, tends to last and last and last. And so, yeah, hatred is one of these, maybe I'll do a podcast on this at one point. Hatred is a very, very dangerous emotion to to get into. Um, I think it demands pretty specific and direct action which is usually not what you want to be doing when you're in that mood or mindset. But the great danger of hatred is that uh, it takes up residence and um, it, I think, really distorts one's view of the world. And I also think that it tends to create self-fulfilling prophecies, which is why people get drawn back to videos they dislike. You know, it's sort of like a, a way to provoke their, their hatred and so on. So mm-hmm. anyway, I don't want to sort of get off on a big tangent, but uh, no, that was, that was, uh, some thoughts. a lot of good food for thought. <laughs> from, from the sounds of it, it's kind of like um, you're saying there's a sort of an in-group uh, versus out-group mentality, not just in terms of, uh, you know, physical traits, but also in terms of moral views, we have an in-group, uh, out-group mentality. Is that right? Yeah, we, we do. And, um, and it's not based upon principles. It's based upon prejudice. Mm-hmm. And it is very, uh, it's very tough for people then to, to think of things objectively. So, I mean, you know, if there's racism in, in a white person, people are like, well, that's racist, right? But a lot of people on the left have have a tough time identifying racism in non-white communities. Yeah. And that is that is where partisanship rather than anti-racism comes into play. And that I think is is because I mean racism which is, you know, the the dislike of of any race for you know, whatever subjective or irrational or nasty. I'm not saying there are good reasons to dislike any race, but, um, but that is, is sort of, that is a universal definition. I mean, you can't say it's white racism, right? And so you you have to say racism as a whole, then, then you have to look at racist uh, incidents uh, around the world. You'd look at sort of interracial crime, you'd look at interracial rape, and you'd sort of try and figure out well, which, you know, what's going on proportionally and so on. And if you do that kind of stuff, well, the answers, won't get into them here, but the answers can be quite surprising. Mm-hmm. But in general, racism is something that's trotted out as uh, you know, basically only white people are capable of racism. And any racism that occurs 
in minorities is can only be a reaction to white racism, which I think takes a huge amount of essential agency away from entire races, which I think is a problem, right? Mm-hmm. So, and you, there's so many things around the world where this it happens in religions, it, it happens in political parties, it happens in sports teams, it happens in neighborhoods, it happens in races, it happens. I mean, the in-group, out-group stuff, I mean, it's very foundational to who we are as a biological species, as, you know, as apes 2.0. And um, uh, it is it is a tendency that uh, is is important to, I mean, because our tribe was our survival mechanism mm-hmm. in the past. And why were we loyal to our tribe? Well, because we needed to live, we needed to reproduce, and the genes that weren't loyal to the tribe didn't usually get passed on because nobody wanted to guard you while you sleep or anything like that, right? Mm. And so we just, you know, they're they're closer, so we like them. And the tribe across the other va- uh, the other side of the valley, we hate those guys. You know, those guys are terrible. I mean, they may look pretty much like us. They may eat pretty much the same food. They may wear pretty much the same stuff. They may live in pretty much the same grass huts or whatever, but we hate those guys, right? So there is that polarizing tendency in human nature. And I think for once, I'll forgive myself. I'm constantly opposing human nature. I'm not saying it's innate, um, but um, it certainly is part of enough people's thinking that we can call it at least contemporary human nature. And certainly, I think we would call it in the past even more so. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a natural inclination, but one that's perhaps possible to reduce through knowledge through understanding yeah that certainly is that certainly is the goal and and in particular with ethics you know if if people are going to define uh, universal values like anti-racism and so on then they need to be universal and um, I uh, I have always felt it to be quite subtly racist to uh, to to not grant full moral agency to any race or group. I just think the moment you withdraw that from anyone, I think you've done them a huge disservice. So, But it's, yeah, it's tough for a lot of people because it's like, well, who are you allowed to dislike? Well, white racists or whatever, right? Ah, those guys, <laughs> terrible, blah, right? Patriarchs, ah, right? Mm-hmm. But um, it's not it's not particularly rational or helpful, I think, in the long run. Yeah, perhaps people should uh, view moral and philosophical issues more like they view a math problem with less emotional investment, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I think so. I think so. And I I think people are naturally that way inclined, or at least sort of my experience as a parent has been that way. But uh, they get pulled off the path often pretty early and pretty hard. And it's hard to find your way back, I think. Mm. Oh, can I uh, plug my site real quick before I go? What is your site about? Uh, it's it's um I do research on moral issues, uh, and I post articles mostly on gender differences and sexuality. And uh, yeah, my name's Jamie Stroud, S T R O U D, and my site is gloryhood, G L O R Y H O O D dot com. All right. Awesome. I hope you get some, uh, some hits. Uh, thank you. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, so much for your thoughts, time, care, attention, and maximum verbosity, as it used to say in the old Zork computer game. Oh, yeah, we're going that far back. It was a PS minus 6,000, I think it was called. Um, So have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful week. If you would like to help out the show, always looking forward to your support and encouragement of what it is that we are up to. You can go to fdrurl.com slash donate to help us out. Sign up for a 5, a 10, 
or more, uh, if you can spare it. It's certainly massively, massively appreciated. So have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful evening, everyone. We will talk to you soon. Hey. Hey, are you still there? It's Mike, back with a little post-show action since we had a bit of a short show this given week. My goodness, we did not go four hours. The shock and horror. (laughs) But no, because we had a bit of a short show this week, I thought this would be a good time to kind of give people a bit of a sneak peek into some of the stuff that's available for the kind people that make the show possible, that help the show survive, those that sign up for donation subscriptions and one-time donations to support the show financially. We do offer some pretty cool stuff for all the people that support the show. Um, If you sign up for a $5 a month subscription, we call that our bronze level. And there are 50 premium files, most of which are podcasts. Sometimes there's PDFs or books mixed in there. But there's 50 premium files for the people that sign up for the $5 a month subscription, including cool things such as Teaching Children Critical Thinking, a podcast on polyamory and history, an interview Steph did on the philosophy of leadership, and a whole bunch more of really cool stuff for five bucks a month. Pretty good deal. Can't really beat that. Then we have our silver section for the people that donate $10 a month, and they wind up getting 45 special silver files in addition to the bronze files, so that's like 95 additional premium things for 10 bucks a month. Not a bad deal. Uh, at that level, you get a PDF of Steph's historical novel, Almost, which I really encourage you to check out. Steph's uh, historical fiction and writing is pretty damn awesome. Um, and we also have the first 22 chapters of that book in audiobook form. It's uh, Steph's still working on churning through the rest of it, but the first 22 chapters are there. For example, there's another podcast called Psychological Antibodies for Toxic People. And then there's a a three-part series that Steph did way back, this is probably three years ago, on objectivism. Three-part series on objectivism. So if you've enjoyed The Truth About Ayn Rand so far in that series, it might be interesting to go back, listen to that objectivism series, and, you know, contrast the two, see if Steph's perspective have changed over the years. It's, uh, It's well worth going in and checking out. Then in our gold section, 20 bucks a month, you enter the gold section. <laughs> you wind up getting the whole kit and caboodle, all the gold, silver, and bronze files. So that's a 168 total premium podcast, books, PDFs, all the fun stuff. And uh, you wind up getting an audiobook reading Steph did of Our Enemy the State by Albert J. Nock. Uh, a podcast I did with a listener entitled Designing Your Life where I talk about how I uh, started working for Freedom Main Radio, which was a whole lot of fun. If you listen to that, I'd love some feedback. Let me know what you think. Also has a PDF copy of Steph's historical novel, Revolutions, which has gotten some high praise on the board. Um, a meditation exercise. Steph actually recorded a meditation a while ago, which, um, man, I haven't done that in a while, but it was pretty interesting at the time, and I'd like to do some more of that stuff. But it's up there, gold section. Um... The conclusion to the Fascists That Surround You series that Steph put out a while ago. This is Part 7, The Cure. Part 1 through 6 are available in the the premium, not the premium, in the regular feed. But Part 7, The Cure, is only available for the very kind folks that chip in 20 bucks a month to support the show. Then, of course, we have The God of Atheists audiobook and PDF, another one of Steph's fiction novels, which uh, is available in print format as well, but 
if I gotta tell you, if you're gonna read this, I wholeheartedly recommend the audiobook version so you can get Steph's blare of metaphors and its its own glory read by himself. It's uh, <laughs> if you thought his metaphors were something else on the show, just wait till you check out the audiobook. All right, and then then for the people that you know pretty much make this show possible and allow us to survive, the Philosopher King donators. That's people that have subscriptions of fifty dollars a month or up. You wind up getting 63 files special for those fine folks for a total of 231 when you throw in the gold, silver, and bronze files. And in that, uh, in that section, there's a seven-part series on ambivalence, which, I mean, who doesn't have ambivalence in their life? This is pretty much the definitive guide to working through ambivalence. Um, definitely worth checking out. A podcast Steph did after his cancer diagnosis last year, titled Best Cancer Ever, where he kind of details his emotional experience of being diagnosed and what had happened from that point. An Ethical Tour Through History, which is a speech he gave in Belize live that uh, we had agreed not to release publicly with the organizer, but we're allowed to put it up in our donator section because, yay, want to give some cool stuff to the fine listeners who support the show. Then we have UPB as Conscience, which is a two-part series. Definitely worth checking out. Eight Steps to Freedom. What are the eight steps you go through on your road from indoctrination to freedom? I want to go back and listen to that again because it's been a while, but uh, from what I remember, yeah, it pretty much summed up my uh, my path in my existence. Wholeheartedly worth checking out. And then a three-part series on the Miko system as well, which uh, I'm sure you've heard talk about in the shows previously. It's another series which is wholeheartedly worth checking out. So yeah, I mean, if you donate at the $50 and up level, you end up getting 231 premium files. And I try and add stuff to that on a regular basis. I'm always combing through old audio, unreleased podcasts, trying to find cool stuff that I can throw out for the listeners and donators and the people that make this possible. And there's there's all types of great stuff in there. Solo podcasts, books, there's, you know, listener conversations that people didn't want released publicly that, you know, just throw up there in the donator section for people. And lots of good stuff. And thank you for everyone that does support the show. It is immeasurably appreciated. And if you are a donator or you're going to become a donator now and you don't have access to these files, shoot me an email at operations at freedomainradio.com. I will get you hooked up with access to all this cool stuff. But yeah, thank you for supporting the show. And now as a a little treat, I'm going to throw in a podcast that I just added to the Philosopher King section, uh, tack it on to the end of the show here, called Terrorism, War, and History, Propaganda Decoded, to just give you a, a sneak peek of the kind of stuff that is in the donator section. So thank you, everyone, for your support. Incredibly appreciated. Without you fine folks, this show cannot survive. And I hope you enjoy the sneak peek into the Premium Podcast. And I'll catch you on the next call-in show. Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I hope you're doing well. So, a fine young man, I guess man, I don't know how youthful he is or isn't, has written in to say that he has conflicts with his girlfriend. He's um, He sort of started off on the zeitgeist um, spectrum, I suppose, looking at how awful what he thought the free market was and then accepted the arguments that what is currently called the free market is not that at all. Um, you know, the, the term that's been used is capitalism and, you know, just crony capitalism and so on. You know, just like I got a message the other day from someone who was saying, uh, well, but you don't understand that 
prisons have been privatized, and this is an example of how the free market doesn't work because there's an incentive for judges who may have uh, investments in prisons to send more prisoners there. And I think one judge in America was recently convicted of this, that uh, he had uh, investments in private prisons and was continually, or, or teen ranches or something like that, was continually sending more prisoners there. So, yeah, but that's not the free market, right? Uh, the government defines the laws. The government persecutes the laws. The government has a terrible system wherein most people in the states end up merely giving plea bargains rather than having any day in court. And they are threatened or rather bribed with years of freedom and threatened with uh, years of incarceration if they don't toe the line and confess. And this is exactly what used to happen in the Soviet Union. Uh, Solzhenitsyn writes about this, that uh, as a captain, I think he was a captain in uh, the Second World War, uh, he was threatened with insane punishments. He had to write out his guilt and confess, and then his punishment, I think, was ameliorated to some degree. And uh, it's, uh, it's insane. And it, of course, all paid for... Government control and tax dollars do not a free market make, right? So the moment something is paid for with tax dollars, you are not in the realm of the free market. So anyway, he and his girlfriend have disagreements about things like World War I, World War II, and they also have disagreements about America's involvement in Vietnam, and they also have uh, sort of the question of, of how do you define terrorism and so on. Well, America has had the goal of promoting the free market all over the world for, you could say, sort of at least the last uh, century. Now, the two biggest advances in the free market, which is really basically why the whole system is still standing, the two biggest advances in the free market uh, were India and China, which America had absolutely nothing to do with. Uh, America had nothing whatsoever to do with the growth of the free market in China and had absolutely nothing, to my knowledge, to do with the growth of the free market in India. And the, the growth of the free market over the last uh, few decades, uh, really in these two countries, has had a massive uh, impact on world poverty. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of people have pulled out of poverty in the greatest creation and production of wealth and alleviation of poverty the world has ever seen. And what did this have to do with the military-industrial complex in the U.S.? Well, it, uh, it had nothing whatsoever to do with it. The other place where free market principles were at least extended from brute communism was uh, the late 80s fall of the Russian Empire. And now you could argue, and some people have argued, that Reagan won the Cold War by, by pushing Russia to by having an arms race and pushing Russia to invest more and more in its arms. I don't see how America mm, making arms forces Russia to buy arms. Um, I think it had a lot more to do with uh, Afghanistan and uh, just the general illogic of a priceless productivity system. <laughs> priceless meaning that without price, without price. But what did America have to do with um, the transition of a Soviet or communist style of economy to a relatively somewhat vaguely free marketish economy? Well, nothing. Nothing. The movement of sort of the Southeast Asian countries uh, and uh, those two, two or more of a free market had to do with what? Where American involvement occurs, where does freedom go? Does freedom increase or does freedom decrease? Wars 
are the health of the state, as has been ably noted, and as I've pointed out, the state is the health of war. You can't have wars without fiat currency, at least modern wars, uh, limitless democratic wars. And so if you want to evaluate American foreign policy, you look at the goals and you look at the facts. And that's, that's what you do, right? I mean, the goal was to bring democracy and peace and the market to Iraq. And how's that been going? Well, it's a complete catastrophe. Massive tribal warfare, disease, death, radiation poisoning. I mean, the place is just a moonscape of hellish, no matter how well-intentioned, hellish human results, inhuman results, really. Do Europeans have more economic freedom now than before the Second World War? Do Americans? Of course not. After uh, almost 100 years of fighting communism, I mean, the Americans and the British first got involved in the uh, 1920, 1921, if memory serves, uh, fighting against the Russians, against the, um, the Bolsheviks. It's been almost 100 years of fighting communism, and uh, how's that working out, right? Communism from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. Right? So those who make more should pay more, and those who have the greatest needs should receive more. Well, the whole idea of a graduated income tax was Marxist. It was Karl Marx who first came up with it. And America that implemented it in 1917, if I remember rightly, slightly before going to fight Marxism, they implemented the core aspect of Marxist ideology. Eight of the ten planks of the Communist Party have been enacted since Russia was fighting communism. So if you look at foreign policy, you simply look at the goal, which is to spread freedom and the free market and democracy and republicanism. I mean, America is a republic, was founded as a republic, which is supposed to be, you can vote on the periphery, but the core bill of rights, the core human rights are inviolable by the majority. How's that worked? If you look at the whole welfare state and, and you know, the, the degree to which the richer are taxed and the degree to which the poor receive benefits from each according to his ability to each according to his need has been implemented on a scale and spending such a sum of money that Marxist's head would explode, like Marx's head would literally explode if he'd known, if he could see the trillions and trillions of dollars, unimaginable, more than the whole wealth of the world in his day, just in the last 40 years have been transferred just in America to the poor he would be uh, uh, astonished. So you look at the intentions and you look at the results. The stated goal of the welfare state in the 1960s was to eliminate, to accelerate the elimination of poverty. The uh, Poverty was already being eliminated and to accelerate the elimination of poverty. And uh, what happened? In Cambodia, which the U.S. dropped uh, close to 3 million tons of explosives, which is almost 50% more than the Allies dropped during the entire Second World War everywhere. America dropped on a country about the size of Oklahoma with a population roughly equivalent to New York at the time, dropped 3 million tons of bombs, destroying vast tracts of the country and killing 7% of the entire population of the country. And this, of course, helped create destabilization and uh, created uh, the Khmer Rouge, 
who were anti-American and uh, anti-capitalist and uh, all that. And so they ended up, what, further slaughtering 20-25% of the country's population, driving everyone out into cities and creating the killing fields of Cambodia. Not sure I miss you, Spalding, but some pretty good work. So that's, uh, that's I mean, just in a very brief tour nutshell, that's that's the result. Did they? Is there a country that America set its sights on to keep it free of tyranny that it kept free of tyranny and made free? I mean, they've been fighting against Castro for 40-plus years. They've been uh, fighting against uh, Al-Qaeda for 13-plus years. And how's all that going? And that's just, I mean, a very brief tour of the externalities of American foreign policy. What about the internalities? If they are aiming to make external countries more free... It must, because, it must be because the American government, at every level, at all its levels, must be really excellent at making Americans more free, right? And so they must have uh, learned how to do this at home and then brought all of this wonderful expertise to foreign countries. And, uh, of course, it's complete nonsense. Uh, I think in the 90s, a black in Washington, D.C., which is really right outside the window, of uh, the Capitol, the White House. A black man in Washington, D.C. was 770 times more likely to be murdered than a man or woman living in Austria. 770 times. It seems to me that the Austrians would have a good case on U.S. foreign policy principles of invading the U.S. and saving us, or saving them, from the American government. The American government can't run schools, can't run the post office with any kind of efficiency, can't maintain roads, can't keep bridges running, has a hugely decaying infrastructure, has created a vast dependent class. 1.6 million Americans last year were arrested for drug offenses. Since the war on drugs, global consumption of opiates has gone up almost 40%. So even when they have, they can't even keep drugs out of prison. So even if they turn the whole world into a prison, they can't get rid of drugs. The astonishing, immoral incompetence and catastrophic results of government programs will in the future be something so astonishing to historians that they will not be able to understand how we could have called for government Involvements or cheered yet another government initiative. I simply won't understand it. How could we possibly believe this? So, in other words, if the American government was very good at bringing freedom to other countries, we would assume that it would be even better at bringing freedom to its own citizens. It's good at not educating them, at propagandizing them. It's good at buying votes by shoveling imaginary money from one group to another. We used to have civil rights, and now we have snivel rights. It's good at breaking things and blowing things up, destroying families. But it's got no interest whatsoever in bringing freedom to the masses. I mean, as far as terrorism goes, and I've got a true news about this, I think it's number five. There was, of course, uh, back in the day, a couple of decades ago, 
a whole bunch of countries uh, got together and really wanted to uh, define terrorism so they knew their enemy, but they had to give it up because they could not find a definition of terrorism that didn't include what they themselves were doing. Uh, terrorism, broadly defined, is uh, generally the use of violence to achieve a political goal. A political goal is a goal to adjust the uh, laws or processes of the country or leadership. And uh, by that definition, all government activity is terrorism because all government activity is the use of violence to change the laws, uh, structures, and leaders of society. All laws, farmers say we want more subsidies for soybeans, and they lobby for that. Well, that's the use of violence or the attempt to use violence to manipulate the public purse to get money they have not earned from people who do not wish to provide it. The only, <laughs> you could say the only non-terrorist government activity is failed lobbying, in which case the bribe didn't work. So it's it's pretty hard to look at, I mean, just the U.S. in the 20th century and find out where it has used its might, Muslim power to expand freedom domestically or in other countries. And this all, all is because of the lack of courage of philosophers, the lack of uh, willingness of philosophers to, in a very deeply principled way, interject themselves into the public discourse. Look, if you want to make people free, you educate them about actionable freedom. Political freedom is something that arises out of a deep abhorrence of the non-aggression principle, and a deep abhorrence of the non-aggression principle is when you understand and are willing to advocate and accept this principle without shying away from it because of childhood trauma wherein you were hit or beaten. In other words, if you were raised through violations of the non-aggression principle, you're going to shy away from consistent application of the non-aggression principle, which means that you will shy away from limitations in state power. Because the moment somebody says the non-aggression principle is immoral, deep down in your subconscious, the parents' hands and fists and belts and spoons, they all heave into view and you recoil from the conversation. You have been conditioned. You have been averse conditioned to principled non-aggression through your parents violating non-aggression in their raising of you. If you wish to instruct other people on freedom, the first thing you must do is live your values yourself. And the second thing you must do is provide them peaceful, voluntary, actionable ways for them to be free or to pursue freedom. If you say, blow people up, then I think it's immoral. And most people won't do it anyway. So you're just teaching people. If you, if you tell them to pursue the political process, well, the political process is still about imposing your will on others. Even if your will is that their will should not be imposed upon you, if people don't understand that philosophically, then you'll just get this Scott Walker of Wisconsin-style revolt where people feel entitled. It's my money. Social Security, I paid into it. I've paid my taxes. I'm a citizen. I deserve. It's, my, it's entitlement. It's what they're called. I'm entitled to this money. It's my money. Mine. And uh, people then think that you're stealing their property because they right, don't understand. But if you give them personally actionable, peaceful ways to pursue and achieve freedom in their own lives, and you are an example of what that looks like, 
you know, if if uh, if you have a uh, a factory on some island producing the most terrible food imaginable, and everyone's getting fat because it's just full of sugar and fat and tastes good and all that, you know, do you tell people you've got to go and take over that factory? You've got to bomb the factory. You've got to try and get yourself elected to the board on that factory. No, you don't do any of that stuff, right? You simply stop eating that food. You become healthy. You lose weight. You exercise. You become enviable to others. And you tell people just you don't have to eat the food. In fact, it's bad for you to eat the food. You do whatever you want. It's bad for you to eat the food. And that's what I do with predatory illusions and those who are the carriers of them. Illusion is an STD, literally. And that's what you end up hated for, right, by some. It's peaceful. It's actionable. Anyone can do it. And you find out whether people actually really believe and are committed to what they uh, claim they uh, believe and are committed to. Should I get off the pot, put up or shut up? Or as they used to say in Texas, he's all hat and no cattle. <laughs> Just pretend, uh, pretend cowboy. Well, the hat is the words, the cattle are the actions. Are you all hat and no cattle? And people don't like that. I, I get that. I understand that. But so what? So what? Ooh, people don't like it. You know what they'll like even less? Social collapse. <laughs> yeah. I think they might have a little bit more of a problem with not being able to eat than having to confront their own addiction to supporting the violence of the state and the verbal abuse of religion. Well, yes, I think they'll find a little bit more tricky uh, things in their lives than being criticized or maybe even ostracized for immoral and destructive beliefs after months and months of trying to be convinced otherwise. So I hope that helps. I, of course, hugely appreciate these questions. Please keep them coming. Always enjoyable to know what's on the hive mind of uh, the listenership. FDRURL.com slash donate. Please help. Hugely, hugely appreciated. Have yourselves a wonderful day, everyone. Stefan Molyneux, on the outness. I will talk to you soon.